Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 72. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing Latin American theology and identity with Norlin Hernandez, who is the director of the Jesse Miranda Center for Hispanic Leadership at Vanguard University and a doctoral candidate in intercultural studies at the Cook School for Intercultural Studies at Biola University. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Reverend Daniel Parham and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So with this episode, we're carrying forward with our cultural identity series. Last week, we had Dr. Octavio Escada on to talk about Latin American theology from a historical perspective. And this episode with Norlin, we really focus on that identity piece, which is very central to our series. And I thought a lot of what Norlin had to share with us really digs into a lot of those key issues that we're really trying to get at with this series, like contextualization and how we all come from a particular standpoint that is really central to any project of theology. What are some things that stood out to you, Daniel? Yeah, I appreciated in our conversation that Norlin really highlighted that we are building our theology out of our own context. Hence, it's critical to understand the context in, in order to inform our lens of theology. Like all of us are coming to that space with some level of cultural contextualization. The other thing that uh, I appreciated uh, was that he brought into the center the aspect of holistic spirituality and and holistic spirituality is incarnational in its nature. Um, it's about immersing the gospel in every framework of your life. And, and as, as you listen, you'll hear how he, he positions that in a Nicaraguan context uh, that was so enriching uh, and gives us, I, I think, a case study of what does that look like uh, in the spaces of community. All right, and here's our episode with Norlin Hernandez. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about why it's important to think about identity and identity formation when we are talking theology? Yeah, important question. I think we, we often don't connect the process of the development of theological discourse to identity formation or to any one particular culture, at least not within the Western context, the Western dominant context of, of theology. If you, if you take a look at other spaces in other regions around the world, it's very much a part of who they are, and they express themselves, they express theology, they express their understanding of God from that particular context and from their identity. And when you come in, in, in this particular place, right, we're in a globalized environment, so we're coming across different cultures, we're coming across different languages, we're coming across different regions very readily fast. So when we do that, then we can see a stark difference between what I believe and what others believe. And one of the major factors that contribute to the awareness of identity formation and its connection to the development of theological discourse is, is that, that reality. So what makes 
this this theology different than that theology? Or, for example, what makes a Western context, uh, a Western theology different than a Southern, you know, majority world theology? And really, it, it has to do with the lived experience. So your question, why is it important? How what what's the connection there? Well, when we develop, right, when we write something, when we create something, we're creating out of our own context. We can't. Uh, we understand the world out of this context, and that context has influenced and has shaped and formed the lenses through which you see the world. So it is imperative. It is critical to understand that about the individual in order to understand the development of that particular theology. Without that, then there is a we we are bypassing an important and a critical aspect of the author, an important and critical aspect of who's doing the development of the theology. We're we're bypassing a very critical aspect even to understand what they say and how they say it and how they contextualize it, how they connect it, how they apply it to to how they apply a particular knowledge, right? A particular truth, biblical truth to, to any one situation. I think that's so enriching, Norlin. Uh, you, you brought out an element of contextualization. And I think even thinking in, in a theological context, we hear about eisegesis and exegesis and, and how the eisegetical framework is dangerous, but they don't give much context uh, using the word, right? To what eisegesis is and how that is differentiated from a contextualization of our theological constructs. Can you, can you give context to that as well as, you know, as we're navigating our own cultural experiences, how does that contextualization flesh itself out um, in a lived Latin American experience? Yeah, phenomenal question. Um, the contextualization process, right? There, there, is, this, there is this concern that I've seen as I read through this and as I research just contextualization effort. Um, the concern is that when we contextualize, we lose the truth. When in reality, the, the effort of contextualization is the effort of translating the truth to a particular context in such a way that it is understood and embraced and then it is spread. But it's, it's one thing to receive a message from someone, maybe you don't understand it, and then you distribute it, it won't have the same power and impact and even followership uh, than it would if that message is contextualized to mean something to me. And then with that same fervor, with that same depth, I then translate that over to someone else. So the task of contextualization, I think what happens is that um, we we find ways to translate the gospel in meaningful and relevant ways. How does that happen in a Latin American context? Well, I can only speak from a Nicaraguense context and from the, from the limited uh, research that I've done in other countries, but from a Nicaraguense context, uh, just recently we, we went through this social, this political upheaval in Nicaragua, April, 2018, where the government was placing some, some, uh, making some, making some changes that the Nicaraguense citizens didn't like. And the young people rose up and there was this political conflict. There was, it, there was death. There were, it was just one of those events that will mark history in Nicaragua. And I started asking myself, well, how, what's the response from the Christian community? 
And in other words, I was asking myself, how are they contextualizing the gospel to fit this particular time and place in history, in the Nicaraguense history? Well, there was multiple ways of how it was contextualized. And my, my thesis, really, my, what I think happens is that depending on how the gospel was portrayed to them, depending on how, how uh, they received the gospel initially, the 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 uh, the approach to the contextualization, you either get a very over spiritualized uh, manner of dealing with the situation, or you get a very crude and very um, non spiritual uh, approach to 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 contextualizing the gospel. Meaning that you you're either holy and and fully spiritual where it's all about the church it's all about let's pray for the people let's open up our doors to those affected by by this situation or secondly it's let's go and let's be at the front lines but not necessarily as a christian but as an individual there there was no common place there was no middle ground and part of it is how uh the gospel was brought to to uh to nicaragua and other places in latin america and the stigma that that uh that still is present within the evangelical community and how and when they should engage with with uh the political system i'll give you one example uh there's this this uh individual his name he just recently passed away a a, a figure in nicaragua ernesto cardenal priest revolutionary poet uh liberation theologian and as he was part of the revolution in nicaragua he was actually appointed a political in, in political office, and he's a Catholic priest. And and uh, the Catholic Church actually said, you know, from this point forward, you can't be part of our institution because there's a clause within the Catholic, uh, um, you know, framework that you can't hold a public office and be part of part of the Catholic Church. But he fa- he felt that there was a necessity to blend his Christian identity with his social responsibility. And that's the kind of, I think, uh, blending and that's the kind of understanding and the kind of contextualization that is missing in, in a context like Nicaragua. So many Latin American contexts function out of a communal space. And when I think in terms of the church in general, the church is communal, but also institutional in its function. Mm-hmm. So how, how does the Latin American Christian community pair well with the institutionalization of the church. Um, mm-hmm. And then also at the same time, given some of the social uprisings that you mentioned, how does that cultural communal aspect actually contrast with the church in light of what might be a cultural, but also theological frame of how you respond to those social movements? That's a great question. I mean, it, you're talking about a, the dynamic of the relationship between the culture from within the context, like the the culture of the context of the country, of the society, and the culture within the institution of the church. And that is a multi-layered answer, I think. It's so many factors that contribute to what that means and how they're formed, because it's denominationally based, but it's it's uh, it's also historically based, like who came in and who who established the particular church. Uh, what what were their uh, what was uh, what was their background and and how that influenced even ongoing uh, secession right uh, of the particular church. But when I think about the dynamic between the the you know the culture 
and the dynamic of the institutional culture, uh, there's a clear link. There, there's a clear connection between the two. And this is what this is what excites me. And this is why I'm actually dedicating my my research, my dissertation to this, because I know from firsthand experience, at least, that there is this uh, two way relationship between who I am and who I am in the church and, and vice versa. Right. It's who the church is. And who the church is in relation to me and, and what, how it influences me. And it influences me in so many ways beyond just the religious, beyond just the faith acquisition, beyond just the uh, spiritual experience of the ecclesial community. So the ways with which I see there's, there's clear connection, it's almost like we're talking about various components. We can talk about the family, right? You can see the family and the cultural values that any one particular context has, like the Nicaraguense context has specific values for family, also for community, right? You can see that there's, as you look at the cultural values in Nicaragua, they very much are resembled within the church because it's part of the context, of course. There's this aspect of holistic spirituality, and and this particularly uh, is is clearly seen in in the most pressing of situations financially uh, in Nicaragua, as well as even here in the States, you can see that there's a holistic, and I'll explain what the holistic spirituality is. There's this embodied experience of what it means to be a Nicaragüense Christian, a Nicaragüense Pentecostal. Uh, it's not just the religious experience, it's a lifestyle really, right? It extends beyond that. And there's also that, like this, this consciousness raising, right? There's a, a social justice component uh, to that relationship. And it, it's, it's found within the family unit, within the culture, and it's also found within the church. So there is a, a deep connection between that. Um, for example, let's talk about family. There are certain values that culturally speaking um, in Nicaragua or some other Latin American context are highlighted, such as the value of respect, such as the value of respect for the elders, of course, uh, such as the value of a family, what it means and, and, and how to nurture that. Uh, and, then, and then you translate that really to the church. And there are certain theological truths, right, that are applied about the respect to, you know, the, the establishment of marriage, the establishment of the family. But then they're coupled now with this cultural value of what it means to be a family. And that transcends sometimes the family unit and then it extends and includes the community. So even the word brother and sister in Spanish from a Nicaraguense context takes on a, like a different level because you're calling uh, the person in front of you a hermano, hermana, brother or sister. And it's like this, this double meaning. It's the Christian faith meaning, of course, I'm your brother and sister in Christ. But there's also this like this cultural value of we're family, even though it's that the, the, the even, even though it's beyond the family unit, it's the norm to include others who are close to you. That's why you have padrinos. That's why you have madrinas. That's why you have, you know, so, so these, these, these folks, these loved ones, these close relatives and friends become incorporated into the family. So as you can see, like this, the cultural values of the family are then extended within and included within the church institution of family. Right? And the coupled with the, the cultural is coupled with the divine, really, in that particular place. And then similarly, it happens with community. It happens with holistic spirituality. It happens with an embodied experience of, um, of what, what does it, an embodied experience really means 
I am living out what I feel is the Bible is telling me. I'm looking at the examples that the, that the Bible provides me, and I am living that out. I am incarnating the examples that I see in the Bible. And that happens within the church institution, of course, but it also happens outside. And part of it extends towards uh, consciousness raising and this idea of social justice and the response to the cultural and the social and the political realities uh, that they face in the context. So how do I embody Christ in this situation? How do I embody Christ in defending the, 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 you know, the poor? How do I embody Christ in the way that I'm living now and I'm, and I'm loving my neighbor tangibly? Not just spiritually, praying over them, of course, but tangibly through the means that I have that God's given me. So much richness in what you just shared. Uh, as, as, you, as you were discussing, Norlin, you'd mentioned uh, the, the phrase holistic theology. And I could imagine for some people have various interpretations of what, what that embodies. Could you, could you explain a little bit more in the context that you're, you're sharing on what is holistic theology? Absolutely. I mean, wonderful question. Uh, from, from my perspective and my own experience, um, holistic spirituality really is about incarnating the gospel. It's holistic spirituality looks at life as a whole, and it says, how can the gospel speak to every aspect, every facet, every space of my life, every uh, the intersection of all of my identities. So when I talk about holistic spirituality, I'm talking about not just worship, not just the traditional liturgy. I'm not talking about the work and the experience within the church walls, right? I'm, I'm really talking about what does it look like to have a spirituality that you take with you everywhere? So this idea that, that family serves or, or that, 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 um, Comunidad, right? That community serves as an archetype for spiritual expression. So holistic spirituality, I'm connecting that to, well, what does it mean to, to, to live out what I'm learning in such a way that it actually impacts the very tangible things of my life and of my community and of my, of my you know, friends and family and loved ones? A clear example of this is really this. Um, as I do research on, on these topics of identity formation of Latin American theologies, there is, there is this very stark truth that when you enter a context like in a, you know, certain Latin American contexts and churches and spaces and communities, you really cannot bring the gospel and, and the people won't necessarily listen to you or hear you or pay attention to you or, or be even able to unless you you feed them because how can you bring the gospel to someone whose belly is rumbling because they haven't eaten in two, three days. So holistic spirituality for me is this idea that yes, I'm bringing the gospel and I'm bringing the truth behind, you know, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and his blood and the cross, but also the recognition of the very practical things the very practical challenges that communities face with not having enough, you know, to meet their needs, with not being able to have an education or with not being able to even 
have the possibility of paying attention simply because they're too distracted by the hunger that they feel. So this idea of holistic spirituality really does resonate within the, the Latin American community, and you see it in the theology. The topics that are discussed in Latin American theologies, they're, they're very concrete, very tangible topics, hunger, poverty, gender dynamics, um, uh, violence, gangs, um, you know, um, not having a father or a mother in the picture. What, 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 what does that mean? Uh, the political crises, dependency, right? When you get really theoretical, you're talking, you're talking about colonialism and the dependency theory. These, these kinds of things that they're not just, they don't just live in the abstract, right? They're, they don't just live in the spiritual, but they truly do affect and influence and impact the lived experience of the individual. So holistic spirituality, that's what that means. I'll give you a, another simple example. I'm in, I'm in my church. It's a Spanish-speaking Pentecostal church. And a brother comes up to me and tells me, brother, um, my, my, my back is hurting. And, you know, I just, I just got laid off from work where at least I'm, I'm on medical leave, but they're not really paying for me. And this is a non-documented individual working in, in the industry of putting, you know, construction and all of that. And it, at that moment, I felt this deep desire and responsibility to pray for him. And of course, the prayer was to, for healing, for God to come and to heal his body. But it extended past that. The prayer included this, this deep empathy, not just for his body, but for the fact that if his body is not healed, then maybe he won't be able to provide for his family. And the realization that this is happening within a U.S. American context where he doesn't have the means, he doesn't have the privileges that a U.S. citizen has to be able to go to the doctors or receive proper care or even the benefits of having medical, uh, a medical discharge from work. So there was this, that, that's what holistic spirituality really represents. It's, I'm, I'm asking God, I'm inter intervening, right? I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, help him, Lord, heal him. But I also have the very concrete realities of what he's going through and what that represents. So it's the very spiritual things for his life, his salvation, but also the very practical things of what it means to be in, and to live in the context in which he lives in. Yeah, I really love that. I love the examples that you gave. And just thinking about that idea about how, you know, you're mentioning if, if food wasn't provided, like, could you really preach the gospel in those contexts? You know, I, I went on a number of, of missions trips growing up, both through my church and through my Christian high school um, to different parts of Mexico, Costa Rica, Peru a couple of times, and even Romania. And when we go on these, these trips, we would um, do what I now call in hindsight, machine gun evangelism. Basically, you just run around, you preach the gospel, there's no connection to the local church, um, no, no real connection to the people. It's just this kind of, you know, just blast of a gospel message. And, um, it, you know, when, as you were describing this, it got me thinking how much of this sort of dichotomy of like, you know, sort of the gospel message versus like gospel living is just kind of like a, a it only really works in a kind of Western white dominant culture and church. Like it's, it, you know, like it's not, 
I'm just curious from your reflection in a Latin American context, right? Is this going to be a dichotomy that would sort of be perpetuated in terms of gospel proclamation and gospel extension, extension of the gospel into the world? You know what I mean? Is it is this very much a Western white way of, of, of doing mission and evangelism is bifurcating and creating these weird dichotomies? Uh, I can't imagine that that would originate or be perpetuated in non-white contexts. Yeah. I mean, the that's the uh, that's the experience, right? That's what what a a a uh, an evaluation of the Western experience would tell you that that's that's the reality here. But when you compare that with, like, like you said, with the mission trips that you took elsewhere, that's not the experience elsewhere. And, and part of it is, you know, based on on the conversation that we're having, it's really it really gets to the point of that. It's we learn how to approach the gospel based on the context that we're in. But the the reality is, or a truth of that is, that that's not the only truth, that that's only part of the gospel, that it's only part of our understanding. So this bifurcation of, you know, knowing the gospel and living the gospel out, it's, it's also present in, in other contexts. It very much is, but to a different degree in a different way, right? For example, um, the, this is the case in, in the Nicaraguense context. Uh, I often say the same. It's you cannot be so spiritual that you that you are of no earthly good. So it, it goes to that point that you're you're talking about. It's this I know the, the the gospel, but I and it's the living out of the gospel. Where have we been taught the right way to live out the gospel? Or what it means to truly embrace that, to in, incarnate the gospel. And uh, certain communities have, and certain communities are still learning, and certain communities. Uh, have yet to be reached in that particular way. Um, I like what you were talking about, this idea that what we create comes from within, comes from who we are, uh, which is related to where we are and all this and thinking about that broader context. One of the things that came to mind was how John Calvin begins the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He begins this you know, big book on God. It's systematic theology. It's all this all this theological discourse, but the very first book is all, it begins with who are you and understanding yourself. And it's that kind of like original dictum, know thyself, you know, it's kind of where it starts. And I've always, I've always loved that that's where Calvin starts, just thinking about how we can't begin talking about God without knowing who's doing the talking, you know, this kind of thing. And, and, and as we are uh, communicating about God and and talking about God and talking to God and all this stuff, theology in the second person, that sort of thing, that we need to understand who we are. But I think I've always took that uh, in a, a much more individualistic way. You know, I, you know, I tend to think about that in, in sort of my, my context, I think about the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or like know yourself, like, you know, get into these like psychoanalytical tools or whatever and, and personality tests but but doubling down on that cultural aspect, which I don't know that Calvin was even reflecting on that part of it, but just thinking about, you know, both individually and communally knowing who we are as we talk about God. I think that's a really helpful thought. Yeah, I think that that's a, I think it's a really important thought and uh, something that, that would do a lot of good to us to keep in mind, especially in the academy. When we, when, when I read works on, you know, the the exegetical uh, task and hermeneutics, and some of these cultural elements are 
ignored, then we, we miss something, right? We miss something in the translation. We miss something in the understanding. And we certainly miss something in the contribution that we could be doing and giving the academy and, and, and the rest of the body of Christ. Uh, I say that because in order for us to, to recognize who we are, we also have to recognize, like you said, we have to recognize the elements that formed us. And one of the most often um, forgotten about elements, or it's a given in any given context, unless you really think strategically and, and intentional about, is epistemology. How do we know what we know? Lately, in the past couple of years, I've been diving deep into do I into the epistemological task from a Latino perspective. And I've been asking myself, how is it that I does that compare with different experiences, with different regions, with different lines of thought? And more than anything, I was really interested to see if there was a an epistemology, you know, that resembled my experience as a Latino as a Nicaraguense, as a Central American. And this, this individual, Bonaparte uh, de Sosa Santos, actually wrote a couple of uh, volumes of books. He's, he's one of the voices on epistemology. Uh, he has a work on epistemologies of the South. And in this work, he tries to, he presents, uh, a, a, he articulates the differences between a Western epistemology and an epistemology of the South which is not necessarily just geographically South, but more of the understanding that there's a dominant epistemology and a dominated epistemology. And oftentimes, of course, we, we can match that up geographically and the South, you know, South of the border of the, of the US, at least in this context, uh, falls within that, that range. But I say this so that I uh, to recognize that there are ways of knowing that haven't been perpetuated, haven't been discussed, haven't been brought to light within the Western Academy. And some of that has to do with who we are. And a lot of the works that I have, you know, that I've run across with the uh, epistemologies of the South in mind have this emphasis on experience, on the experiential elements of living and knowing, not just the logical, because that's a very Western idea, right? Very Western concept, a very Western approach to knowledge is very logical and it's, you know, supposedly objective and self-objective. But the epistemologies of the South really say it's, it has to be subjective because ideas are not detached from us, from who we are and how we experience them. So if we run with that and we, we couple it with the task of theological discourse, right, writing that, then we're writing from our experience. And as we translate the gospel, you know, as we understand it, of course, we have to do our due diligence. Absolutely, right? The hermeneutical task has to be followed, and there's certain processes and procedures that are just useful regardless of who you are, where you are. Absolutely. But there's also room, room for the inclusion of these different epistemologies that will grant us access to a deeper understanding of what the Word is trying to reveal to us. And that comes from experience. And I think that's something that the Latin American theological voice brings forth. And, you know, the, the works that can be named that they do, you know, Justo Gonzalez in trying to do this from a Hispanic perspective. We see Juan Luis Segundo doing this from a, a Catholic perspective as well. Liberation theology. We see Mission Integral. Right? We see all these different movements and these different efforts that are trying to 
put this forward from an experiential uh, standpoint and point of view. Yeah, that's great. And that that leads me to ask more about the unity and the diversity of Latin American theology. So you had mentioned some different voices. And of course, when you think about the different denominations that fall under the umbrella, the the different uh, theological um, spectrums, you know, I, I wonder if you could speak to that kind of unity and diversity a, a, l- a little bit more. Yeah, I'll speak to it, of course, from my perspective, and this is by no means a an overgeneralization of how it is or of the you know the end truth, <laughs> but at least from what I have come across and how I am understanding, you know, the landscape, the theological landscape in the in the Latin American community, you know, within the motherland and diaspora, right? Uh, because as I think through this, I'm thinking about every single population, right? I'm thinking about all the possibilities, all the variations ethnically, culturally, gender, we're looking at regionally, we're looking at, you know, uh, where, where they are uh, within the states and outside of the states, generational differences. Uh, all of that brings this mosaic, right, of, of diversity within the Latin American community. One of the things that I will recognize, though, is that there is this hard reality that it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, there are certain presuppositions that the broader culture, the global culture, has created and has established, per se, about the Latin American community. For example, the Latino image in the U.S., the media has said some some things about it, right? Politics have said some things about this. Movies, TV shows, music, you name it. All of these are contributing to this understanding uh, that then turns to these these, uh, preconceived notions of who the Latino, the Latina is, right? The Latino, you know, has often been historically, and we see this in in, in research, has been uh, uh, deemed lazy or uh, devious, uh, has been deemed someone who is uneducated. And of course, the over-sexualization of the female Latinas, right? All of these different things are, I mentioned these things because they're incorporated within your, the question that you're asking. There is a diversity, absolute, absolutely, ethnically, linguistically, gender, regionally, the food, the traditions, all of that exists even within one single country, right? Mexico and the different departments that it has, the different states, per se, uh, and Central America and the various countries and then the various regions within it. In Nicaragua, for example, you have the Western coast, which is a, a, a mestizo uh, European um, uh, dominant uh, aesthetically looking people. And then you have the East coast, which is more Afro-Caribbean and traditions and the food. You can see it. So there's this really stark divide, even within the same country, right? Just based on region. Uh, and along with that, of course, all the practices and the cultural values and everything that comes with that. But I, I want to go back to, the, to what I started is there is still this underlying similarity, I believe, I feel. There is still this, this foundational uh, starting place, so to speak, for most, if not all, of Latinos. And it has to do with the, the historical realities that have happened and how they have impacted every generation of Latinos, right? But while we're talking about the conquest, what that's meant for everybody after that, 
We're talking about colonialism and what that's meant for everybody, for all the Latinos after that. We're talking about capitalism and what it's meant for the Latinos, you know, for generations, for centuries. So there is this, I believe there's this unity in experience. This is why when I meet someone who is Latino and they can be from a country that I've never visited before, they can be somebody from, let's say, Belize, and they can be somebody from Colombia. I've never met them, but as soon as they start talking Spanish and I start connecting with them, and there is this immediate connection because there is this connection based on experience that I resonate with, that I can be empathetic about. Now, there's also variances in, in how deep that, that relationship or that experience may be because, again, there's differences even within a, a, a context, right? There's socioeconomic differences, uh, and, and that creates a certain experience, of course. But by and large, uh, I think that there is this foundational similarity that brings unity, cohesiveness to the Latin American experience and identity. Um, there's, this, uh, there's this author that uh, started talking about uh, Gracia, Jorge Gracia. He, he talks about the Latin American identity from a philosophical perspective. And his thesis is that, that we should be looking at Latin American identity. Actually, he, he, he pushes forth the Hispanic term because it's historically based and it, and it's, it deals with the conquest. And from that point forward, it, there, it's this domino effect of experience that encapsulates the Hispanic community. So in that sense, I resonate with what he's saying because he's saying there's this foundational experience that is all embracing. Right? Like it embraces everybody. It includes everybody. It affects everybody. What would you say is the one thing or maybe a couple of things that the church in the West really needs to learn from Latin American theologians? Wow, that is a phenomenal question. There, there are so many things that I could say the Western church could already incorporate because of the works that do exist. And part of it have to do with the experience of the Latin American Christian. And, and one of the things, of course, especially when we, especially when we compare it with, let's say a US, U.S. based church, which uh, just being in the U.S. alone comes with its privileges and, and its experience, right, and its expectations. And compared to other countries, uh, such as Nicaragua, then it's very different. So there's this perspective of being able to understand the Bible and experience God, experience spirituality from the margins, right, and what that means for folks. And I'm not saying this is a blanket statement across all Americans, you know, North Americans, all U.S. citizens, of course not. But I'm saying by and large, uh, the experience of, of Christians, you know, especially in mainstream evangelical uh, churches, it's not one of a marginalized experience, right? It's not a marginalized experience. And because of that, then we are missing the perspective of this community, which is very much a part of the gospel narrative. We see this in Jesus. We see this in some of the apostles. We see this in the females that are a part of the narrative, you know, the, the, the gospel narrative. And without us understanding the minoritized, the marginalized experience, that we can't fully comprehend what the author, what the message really is about. So I think that that's a, a really important voice that, uh, that already works and we could incorporate them. 
But there's this other, there's this other, I guess, deeper idea that I have that, that uh, maybe it, it's about a recognition, I think, a recognition of just how diverse experiences are. And we can bring that to the task of theologizing. We can bring that to the spiritual experience. We can bring our full selves. And this is what's problematic. I, I did a case study not too long ago, uh, and I interviewed three uh, Latino, Latina leaders in Pentecostal churches in Los Angeles. And I asked them about this intersection, about their ethnic identities and their Christian faith and their theology, their understanding of these two components. And there was one question specifically that I remember asking, and I said, what does it mean to be a Latina Christian? The respondent just uh, stayed quiet for a while. And then she broke the silence by saying, you know, I've never really thought about that. And I thought that was so interesting because, especially within the U.S., we are, we, especially within L.A., which is so multicultural, you're often coming across, especially in the workforce, with different cultures, and inevitably, you start comparing. Inevitably, you have questions about other cultures that then give you greater insights into your own. So I found that to be interesting because then that meant that the church wasn't being intentional about nurturing who they are. And bringing their selves, their full selves, their ethnic identity, their gender, and their Christian faith, and then molding all of that together to, to form who they are, right? So I feel like in Latin America, historically, there has been this comparison between the dominant culture and the dominated culture, you know, the, the, the effects of colonialism, the dependency, uh, the financial dependency that we've had to endure, really. Um, with the Western world and, and how that influences our approach to God. And because we know there are so many variations of that experience, we are often really welcoming. I'm not going to say always because I know that that's not a fact, <laughs> but we very much, the majority of the times we all welcome, we welcome different perspectives and experiences. Testimonials are a big part of the, the Latin American liturgy, testimonies. And testimonies all about who we are and who God transformed us to be. And that adds this, this interesting dynamic, right, to, to uh, our experience as Christians, as followers of Christ. That I think if, uh, if the, the, the Western church were able to uh, embrace and were able to be open to that, there, there would be, I think, uh, a, a greater sense of collaboration, a greater understanding of the global Christian identity, not just a very limited, very contextual, very Western understanding of the Christian identity. All right. Well, thanks so much for that, Norlin. This was really helpful to hear your insights and thinking about identity and how that relates to theological discourse and not just limiting identity to individualistic categories, but also thinking more communally and ethnically and thinking about who we are in a much more holistic sense, as you have described. So just very much appreciate your insights and having you on today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, John. And thank you, Daniel, for having me. 